Hello and welcome to Crossing Channels, a podcast collaboration between the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge and the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. This series is all about using the interdisciplinary strengths of both institutions to explore some of the many complex challenges facing our societies. I'm Rory Kathleen jones and today's episode asks the question, will democratic leaders ever live up to our expectations? We're going to look at what we expect from our leaders, how that's changed over time, and whether democratic leaders are particularly prone to disappointing us. To explore these issues today, we have Roberto Foa from the University of Cambridge. Roberto, remind us of your main research interests. Good afternoon, Rory. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. The core of my research is really centred on the study of public opinion, and then from there, how that relates to the functioning of democracy and of government more broadly. Plenty of us to chew on there. And from the IAST, we have Zachary Garfield. Zach, what do you focus on? Thank you for the introduction, Rory. Pleasure to be here. My main research focuses on cross-cultural diversity of leadership and followership, and the evolutionary psychological and cultural underpinnings of diversity in human leadership systems. So we've got two very different insights, specialisms here, which should make for a rich and interesting conversation. So let's get going. Let's start by looking at whether we are disappointed by our democratic leaders or not. What's the evidence? And has that changed over time? Roberto, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Um, Well, trust in politicians is certainly in a long-term decline, and that's actually not a new story. It's been declining for at least a generation, if not longer than that. However, I should say the extent of that decline really varies a lot from country to country. So it's worse in the United States than in the United Kingdom, for example, and it's worse in the United Kingdom than in a country like Germany or Sweden. But I think that word disappointment is very interesting because disappointment is always relative to expectations. I think in that regard, there has been a change recently in that in Western democracies, you know, we used to have very high expectations and then would be upset that those expectations were not being met. But I think if there's one thing that concerns me now, it's that we've reached a point in public life in some countries where many citizens, voters have reached a point of cynicism where they expect politicians to, to lie or cheat or swindle. And so when they do, they don't actually care about that reasoning that all politicians are as bad as each other. You're saying it's not such a shock these days. It would have been cataclysmic 50 years ago for your trusted politician to let you down. But now, hey, that's what you expect. You know, all the negative news is kind of already out there. So I think that when you've reached that point of cynicism, then that's something that really enables politicians like Donald Trump, where basically there's no scandal that can really bring them down. And certainly when you put that together with very high levels of partisanship, at least, you know, your own supporters will never abandon you. Now, Zach... I think you might have a a kind of different insight into this. You're an evolutionary anthropologist. You're presumably looking at all sorts of different societies and the concept of leadership in smaller forums and as well as across nations. Exactly. So a lot of my work does focus on what we sometimes refer to as small-scale societies. These are generally politically acephalous or non-industrial populations that have been either described by ethnographers or observed by anthropologists. And Regarding leadership, I think leadership in both democracy are interesting phenomena because they necessarily involve an individual relinquishing their autonomy. But a lot of evolutionary models of cooperation um, and decision-making often emphasize that you know we have these capacities because they allow us to make good decisions that benefit ourselves. Um, but in the case of leadership and followership, individuals willingly or, or not 
lose that autonomy. And so it puts them at puts them in a vulnerable position to be exploited by leaders. Are we seeing that change over the time as those societies change, as they become more sophisticated? Do their attitudes to leadership change? Well, yes and no. There are some what seem to be broadly universal features of leaders across cultures. And some key dimensions of this would be that they're generally respected individuals. You have to have some respect and clout with the community to achieve these roles. And this is an important distinction, whether leadership is like achieved or ascribed. And another key quality of leaders across cultures is this idea of generosity. So if you are able to offer pro-social solutions and outcomes to the, the community, you're generally preferred as a leader. And what about the age and characteristics of leaders? Uh, have they traditionally been the venerable old, presumably men mostly, of the society? And, and is that changing? So yes, that's correct. But we need to also think about uh, the social context. So if we're talking about the sort of community level political leaders, these are often older men who have accomplished some expertise within the community. But if we go within different contexts, within a particular economic group or within a kin group or within various social groups, we might see more diversity along the sort of age dynamic. Roberto, what do we generally expect from leaders in a democracy? And is it uncommon for those expectations to actually be met. Have we had enough years in in many democracies to get used to the idea of disappointment? I come at this question almost from a survey research background. And I guess the first principle in survey research is that there's a lot of variation among citizens uh, and within the electorate. So I think in terms of what do citizens expect from politicians, I would say that the real problem today is that you have two portions of the electorate whose expectations are not well anchored in reality. So you have one proportion of the electorate whose expectations have continued to rise and rise and now expect politicians to be angels and meet impossible standards. And so that that set of citizens will always be upset by every non-scandal scandal that is out there in the public domain circling on social media. But then you also have this more cynical rump of the electorate who are exhausted. And I say literally exhausted because it actually takes a lot of energy nowadays to separate um, what is a kind of fake story from what is a real scandal. And so you have one proportion of the electorate who are so exhausted by that that they've given up on standards in public life. And those citizens in the electorate, they'll always be cynical. And actually, there's nothing politicians can actually do to impress them. I think that you know, a psychologist would look at that and say that there's almost a sort of democratic personality disorder going on whereby you know you have a large section of the electorate whose expectations are not real. Is there a bit of golden ageism here going on? Was it the case that you know leaders of the 40s and 50s, you know the Harry Trumans, the Clement Attlees in, in in the United Kingdom were trusted in a way and delivered on their promises in a way that politicians don't today or was that purely a, a matter of perception? Well, here I would separate trust and trustworthiness. So were politicians more trusted in the past? Yes. Were politicians more trustworthy in the past? There, I'm not so sure. Uh, And in fact, that's something that we kind of know we don't know because many, whatever scandals occurred at that time, I'm going to guess that, you know, 80 or 90% of them never, never saw the light of day and therefore now now never will uh, because whoever would have known those secrets has has long since passed uh, six feet under. So I don't know whether there is a golden age with respect to standards in public life. But what I think we can say is 
is that we've gone through three stages of expectations. There was a stage in that golden age when we had really low expectations. Those expectations were met. We were very happy. Then we had a phase when our expectations had risen, politicians were falling short, and we were very unhappy. And now I think we're in a phase where you've got a lot of people who have really low expectations because they think all politics is corrupt. And they're always happy, but not because their expectations are not being met, but because they've given up in a sense on the system. Zach, give us some sense from your fieldwork of what comes through about leadership on, on a smaller scale and what works and what doesn't. Well, evolutionary social scientists like myself were often thinking in terms of costs and benefits. And ideally, benefits outweigh cost if systems are to progress and be promoted. And so in a relatively small scale of society, most people can interact face-to-face. Most people know each other. They have these complex social relationships and histories. And there's the opportunity for followers to directly hold their leaders accountable. If they make decisions that are unsavory for them at, at time one, you can sort of bring that back up at time two and say, hey, you know, I, you didn't consider me, my family, our group when you made this particular decision when you solve that conflict or propose this policy for the group to move or to take on some new activity. And so that opportunity for followers to continually sort of be in the front of the face of their leaders, I think is more consistent with our evolutionary psychology of just face-to-face dynamics and is a, um, a big difference between the sort of mass global scale of politics and political dynamics we face today. And what about time spans here? Are the societies you examine more patient in terms of giving their leaders a a lot of time to do the job? Or do they want to swap around every couple of years or not? I do think that just social life in general moves at a much slower pace. Or when you're considering a population that is not involved in technology, especially non-literate societies, oral histories are very important. And this is sort of how communication is shared. And there is a sort of sense that you know, you have to wait for a lot of things to come about. Give us an example of one society that you've looked at and one leader, possibly. Does anything come to mind uh, that we can draw a lesson from, from a particular case study? Some of my dissertation work was with uh, the Chabu. They're a group of forager horticulturalists who live deep in the forest of southwest Ethiopia. And this was an interesting case because they had recently begun to elect sort of democratic leaders in this relatively egalitarian society. This was through a sort of neighborhood administration system. And so this was mostly kind of the younger men. There's also a system for women being elected to these formal leadership positions. But sometimes they would not make decisions that were beneficial for most people. And in this context, the elders were advised to sort of come in and sort of coach these younger, sort of aspiring political leaders in a sense, to make better decisions, maybe to reduce their temper, to maybe not enforce punishment so strictly. And there was a lot of uh, leeway, I think, given to these individuals to sort of find the best strategies that would work for the group in consultation with the elders who had more of this uh, cultural repository of information. Right. So the, the society gave power to younger leaders, but also gave that restraining power to the elders. Exactly. So in this sort of transitionary period where you have a a community that is engaging with the sort of democratic process for the first time, essentially, there was a lot of patience and leeway given to these uh, new leaders who are learning new skills. They're learning how to interact with the government officials. In many cases, they're increasing their linguistic capacities by learning the national language. They don't speak that language. They don't learn it as children. So there's a lot of skills that these individuals had to learn. Roberto, is there a paradox here that the more mature to use uh, maybe a loaded word, the more democratic a democracy, the more the population is likely to be easily disillusioned with leaders. Whereas 
in again to lose a use a, a loaded word immature and partial democracies like Russia leaders like uh, Vladimir Putin find it relatively easy to stay popular I'm not sure the premise is entirely correct. I mean, you have a lot of partial democracies like Venezuela or you know Malaysia prior to the 2018 election, where leaders are deeply unpopular. And in fact, they remain in power precisely because the system is set up in such a way that it's very hard to get rid of them. So it's not really you know such a clean divide, I would say there. Um, but it really all comes back to expectations again. So and and I think with respect to long-standing democracies, there's a question about how expectations are really informed by experience. So in the West, we have somewhat higher expectations because broadly speaking, we do actually have a better track record of integrity and accountability in public life than in most developing democracies. And so you mentioned Putin there. And I think the secret of Putin's success is that by the end of the 1990s in Russia, expectations were set so low that it was very, very easy to surpass them. And indeed, when you watch interviews with Russians about why they support Putin, what they come back to again and again is you know, how bad things were in the 1990s. And basically that, that very low expectation base. Zach, what's your take on this? As the societies you examine get more quotes, democratic, unquote, do their leaders find it more difficult to prosper? Well, I'm not sure if I can speak to that directly, but I was thinking that, you know, this dis- idea of a disappointment, disappointment in elected leaders is really a bargaining strategy in many, in many ways. Followers want their welfare to be taken into consideration. And by expressing this lack of contentment, it's an opportunity to vote with your emotions and with your lack of satisfaction. And as you have more options, so as the sort of marketplace for democracy or leaders might increase, that can sort of drive the opportunity to use this sort of socio-emotional component of followership as a way to ideally bias decision-making in your favor. If those options don't exist, human psychology is also very good at, we're quite resilient. We can call it making the best of a bad situation. And leaders like Putin or in in other cultures where they have much uh, of an authoritarian control over the social system, they're often using a complex system of economic control, military control, relying on a large social network, and ideological control. And this is really a complex system for the mind to navigate. And when they have effectively mastered these four domains of control, there's not much opportunity for individuals to express much discontent. That kind of brings me on to, to thinking about what does go wrong for leaders who start their leadership in in very positive popular mode and then things go wrong there are two different things that can go wrong i suppose they can actively do things that disappoint people and one thinks of prime minister boris johnson in the uk whose popularity has absolutely plummeted over actual breaches of lockdown rules and then there are external events gordon brown an earlier prime minister wasn't hugely popular but his popularity was cut off at the knees as it were by a global financial crisis do populations distinguish between those two things where they are very much the responsibility of the leaders themselves moral failings and external events where they have some responsibility but there's not a lot they can do about for instance a global pandemic or a global financial crisis arriving yeah, I mean, you know, the linkage between the economic cycle and public opinion has always really depressed me uh, because it's the one thing that politicians really are not responsible for. Even Gordon Brown, uh, of course, who had been chancellor for a very long time before the global financial crisis. 
However, that's sort of true over time within countries. But I think that there is some evidence, pretty good evidence, that citizens around the world are able to reach reasonably objective judgments about the kind of functioning of their democracy more broadly. So when you compare between countries, you have certain places that have permanently high satisfaction with democracy, like in Scandinavia, and certain places like Southern Europe, where it's more or less permanently low. And when we run statistical models and try and explain why those cross-country differences exist, a sort of objective assessments of the extent of corruption like that produced by Transparent International tend to be one of the best predictors of those differences. So the economic factors, they kind of get washed out eventually, but the institutional factors, those effects prove persistent. So people are actually more offended by corruption than incompetence. Absolutely, yes. Zach, does that play through in the smaller societies you look at? Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing as Roberto was talking. There's widespread evidence that preferences for fairness and taking a balanced and equitable approach to decision-making is probably a, a fundamental and deep-seated aspect of our psychology. And we can see that, I think, too, in non-human species. Uh, you know, A key function of leadership among primates and other social animals is to resolve conflicts. And there are experimental studies with primates illustrating that when there's a lack of equity and outcomes, uh, individuals are very sensitive to that. Oh, right. So that is sort of built into us. Roberta, you wanted to come in. Yeah, um, no, I agree with that. I mean, I think that it is fundamental to human psychology, and it's true in politics, that the one thing that people absolutely do not forgive is hypocrisy and related to that betrayal. So it's fine, or at least it's not, it's not great, but it's not too bad if a politician fails to deliver on their promises. However, if they make a promise and then do something completely different, particularly if it's to a key constituency of theirs, or they turn out to have completely different values from what they claim to have, that is something that creates deep, deep, deep unpopularity for a politician. I mean, just look at, you know, look at the respective fates of David Cameron and Nick Clegg <laughs> during that coalition. I think it's a very good illustration of that. That's interesting, isn't it? Because they were joint leaders, as it were. David Cameron was a senior partner, of course, but they were both responsible. One of them won a sweeping election victory the next time. The other saw his party and his own political career completely destroyed. And that, you're saying, was because his particular constituency felt betrayed by one particular policy on student finance. That was the big one, yeah. I mean, of course, it wasn't the only one. Has our modern media landscape, in particular social media, made a difference here, made people make up their minds for good or ill much faster, given democratic leaders less time, frankly, to think long-term to get things right. Zach, any, I know a lot of the, the societies you study presumably don't have access to social media, but um, what's your feeling? Well, this is actually something I'm interested to study long-term as populations, these rural populations that I work with, gain more access to internet, social media, mobile technologies. But my impression would be that, yes, certainly just the social life moves much slower. Uh, it takes time to gather consensus, consult with your, your family members, your friends, your larger kin group. And these societies generally have many cross-cutting, what we call sodalities. There's corporate membership in complex social organizations. And it takes a while to um, identify the best sort of policy or strategy within each of these nested groups within a society or a community. I mean, we've seen, haven't we? I mean, Myanmar is a classic example of the devastating effect the arrival of social media can actually have on not just on on the politics of a country, but on 
community relations in Myanmar, it, the arrival of Facebook was effectively blamed for the persecution of the Rohingyas. Yeah, and it can't be overemphasized how important social institutions are in guiding much of behavior and decision-making and inter-individual interactions. And I think one thing that social media can do is begin to undermine some of these you know, long-standing social institutions. And that can happen incredibly fast. I believe it can, yes. Roberto, in Western societies, how has social media changed the game for, for democratic leaders? How has it sped up, potentially, what they have to do, how quickly they have, for instance, to fulfill their promises? Yeah, I think one aspect of it is the shortening of attention span and the way that that undermines long-term you know, strategic thinking, which is essential in governance in general, not just specifically in democratic politics. This is an interesting question. Uh, there's been a controversial book out recently claiming our attention span has been ma massively shortened by social media. The other argument is that social media has given people a lot more information than they ever had before. Yeah, well, there's two things there. So I think one thing is that when you look at political life today, you don't have the cycle that you used to have. So particularly if you look at a country like the United States, you, know, you used to have a, a system in which an ordinary citizen didn't really need to be that interested in politics for much of the time. Uh, you had you know, congressional elections and you had the presidential election and the rest of the time you could just be a somewhat parochial citizen going about your business. And that provided an accountability mechanism right, with these you know, intervals. Now we have a situation where the drama of politics is kind of continuous, right? And so there's a big shift. And I, mean, I think, you know, that shift is almost illustrated by watching Yes Minister <laughs> on one hand, and then you watch the thick of it, right? And there's two separate portrayals of how politics operates that are both extremely accurate for the time that they're describing and quite different. Uh, so one thing I say is the attention span issue or the time interval. Now, the other thing you alluded to there is the informational issue, right? That we've completely lost quality filters with social media. And that's just a huge problem, right? I mean, the current war in Ukraine is a great example because every day we're being bombarded with you know, accusations and denials, counter accusations. And at present, there are very few people on the ground to do independent fact checking. Of course, that is happening now. We probably know a lot more, but we know a lot more that is false as well as a lot more that is accurate. Right. And that's actually, you know, that's a deliberate strategy. Okay. So I think a lot of people misunderstand Russian propaganda in this sense, because I think a lot of people have this idea that, you know, the Putin regime is bombarding its population with pro propaganda on TV to whip them into a nationalist frenzy. And okay, maybe for a certain subset of the population that's happening and that works. But the much more significant effect is you confuse people who may be accessing you know, other media sources, but you bombard people with so much information that they no longer know what is true or false anymore. Uh, and a lot of disinformation, you know, not just in authoritarian regimes, but actually in political campaigning generally, is precisely about that. You use the lack of filters in social media to create ambiguity. And in that way, you know, you can actually allow uh, you know, unscrupulous politicians simply to hide in plain sight. So just think about this, right? It used to be the case that Nobody knew about a scandal. Then a newspaper broke it. It was a huge thing. People would talk about it. Now, what is kind of crazy is that most of the political scandals out there, uh, you know, most of the political scandals that hit public debate, it turns out they've been in the public domain for years before anyone paid attention to it. But you know, in social media, you know, this can just circulate in this information fog. So I say that actually both of those you know, have undermined the accountability mechanism in politics. Which is ironic because the internet idealists, utopians, thought it ushered in a whole new era of democracy, participatory democracy, 
And it hasn't, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, it hasn't, because part of the problem here as well is that politics has an aesthetic function. For some people, politics, and it's particularly true in social media and Twitter and so on, that um, politics has become almost like a team sport. And that is not a helpful way of addressing public policy issues. You mentioned Ukraine, which brings me around to talking about the Ukrainian leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, who I'm thinking I'm right in saying had very low popularity levels before the war. And he is a democratic leader who has exceeded expectations uh, and has proved hugely popular. What is it about his leadership that has led to this? Let, let me get Zach in there. I mean, what's your take on, on Zelensky? Yeah, I think it's an interesting display of uh, really a leadership style strongly rooted in what we call prestige style leadership, where you know Zelensky is a, an individual who has a background in the arts, in law, so he's educated. He sort of evokes these ideas of Plato's philosopher king, and he has this sort of oratory ability, many leaders do have, but that is also characteristic of leaders who are typically humble and generous. And so when he is using these internet platforms to sort of evoke a call to arms to to bring support to his country, I think we find that quite appealing. And it's, I think as we've seen, quite effective, at least to some to some extent. It's an old-fashioned leadership style in many ways. It's sort of over the ages, the man, usually the man, who leads his nation in war and shows himself to be brave and to be out there with them, has won enormous respect. Yes, it's fusing both this idea of, of valor and intelligence and knowledge, but also bravery and willingness to take risks on account of the constituency. Roberto, what's your take? Well, you're right that yeah, before the conflict, Zelensky's, Zelensky was disappointing expectations domestically. And now, of course, that's completely turned around. And there was an opinion poll done at the end of March that suggested or that said that I think it was 81% voting intention for Zelensky in the next election in Ukraine. Uh, so that's pretty incredible. That's like not even Vladimir Putin, can, I think, can, can get there. Uh, so so um, that is a response to the success of his leadership style in this war. So, well, there may be old fashioned elements to it. But I think really what I see here is, you know, before this conflict happened, we were talking a lot about hybrid conflict, right? And we're talking about Russian hybrid conflict and the Russian ability to you know, use information and cyber warfare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, but really, I mean, the real surprise is that the Ukrainians have turned out to be really much better at hybrid warfare than the Russians ever were. And in a way that's completely bamboozled them. And you've got to remember, you know, Zelensky and his team, they've been doing this all their career. I mean, Zelensky's an actor, they've got people around him from a, a TV arts background. And so they're absolutely geniuses at this new political game, the social media publicity campaign, the war for hearts and minds, as we used to call it. Basically, they've taken those skills that they used so successfully to win the 2019 presidential election as a complete outsider candidate from nowhere, except for his TV series, and reapplied those skills from the domestic audience to a global one with incredible success. It's impressive because, I mean, you know, the Ukrainians had a terrible set of cards going into this conflict and they've played them well and they've realized that the only hope they ever had of winning, or at least getting as far to this point, was that they couldn't face the Russians one-on-one. -on -one. They would have to leverage global public opinion and Western democracies in order to apply pressure on Russia through sanctions and then, of course, through the no-fly zone, which didn't happen, and then, of course, through the direct aid to Ukraine, notably in, in rearmament. So I think it's, it's, it's ingenious. It certainly wins my you know, Machiavelli prize, I think, for 2022. Finally, I'd like to sort of wrap this up by asking what your recipe is for good leadership in this difficult 
era where democracies are in some cases crumbling a bit, where social media is undermining democracies in, in, in some areas of the world and, and, and changing our expectations of, of our leaders. Roberto, Zach, imagine you're a democratic leader with a new mandate. How do you keep the population on side? What, what's your manifesto, Zach? Well, I think this was alluded to a bit earlier, but when individuals feel like they have had the opportunity to voice their opinion, even if the outcome is necessarily not consistent with their initial perspective, that generally makes people feel better about whatever policy is enacted. And so, like we've seen with Zelensky, if, in, if politicians and governments can use these platforms to communicate more directly with followers, I think that would generally lead to greater uh, satisfaction with elected leaders. So it's referendums is the answer. The Swiss have the answer. They have a referendum every two minutes. I think that's along the lines of what I'm thinking about. I mean, polling is obviously an important and huge component of, of political science, but I think there's a, a new way to think about polling in terms of allowing individuals to feel like their points of views are being taken into account, and not just for voting for an individual, but for engaging in policy decisions that affect them directly. Roberto, what's, uh, what's your manifesto for your successful leadership of Cambridge in the world? <laughs> okay. Well, I think I would I would paraphrase Tolstoy here by saying that, you know, all successful, happy democracies tend to look alike, but unhappy democracies all tend to be unhappy in their own special way. So I think that the solution really depends from country to country. I mean, you have some countries where the problem is just a total lack of integrity in public life and, and dealing with corruption is the core issue. You have other countries where the issue is about the electoral system and lack of representation. You have other countries where the problem is institutional and about the lack of protection of civil rights and liberties. So I think that you know, each country where there is a legitimacy crisis or malaise, um, a softer term, you know, has its own unique problems. Well, that's a great point on which to end. I'm going to vote for both Roberto and Zach, and I hope neither of you let me down. That's all we've got time for on this episode. Thanks to our expert panel, Roberto Foa from the University of Cambridge and Zachary Garfield from the IAST. Let us know what you think of this seventh edition of Crossing Channels. You can contact us via Twitter. The Bennett Institute is at Bennett Inst. The Institute for Advanced Study is IAS Toulouse. And I am at Ruskin147. If you enjoyed this program, then do listen to our other episodes, notably our recent edition with the Kiev School of Economics talking about the Ukraine invasion. And please join us next month for the next edition of Crossing Channels. <laughs>